Hey, I'm John. And I'm Becky. And this is the We Are For Good podcast. Nonprofits are faced with more challenges to accomplish their missions and the growing pressure to do more, raise more, and be more for the causes that improve our world. We're here to learn with you from some of the best in the industry, bringing the most innovative ideas, inspirational stories, all to create an impact uprising. So welcome to the good community. We're nonprofit professionals, philanthropists, world changers, and rabid fans who are striving to bring a little more goodness into the world. So let's get started. Welcome, welcome. Becky, what's happening? Well, I'm pretty excited today because we're having one of my people on. We have a dear friend on the line today. And she is coming to us from Kansas City, Missouri, and we're visiting today with Beth Silverstein, who has just an amazing breadth of wisdom and experience in the nonprofit sector. She has been working in this industry for 35 years, and one look at her skin would tell you that she's been doing this since she was four, because that's how young she looks. She does not look like somebody <laughs> who has <laughs> who's been in the sector. But yet sector. she's been in it this long, but she's not jaded. Like you talk and I you know. get filled up. And she and and I think the reason that we connect so well, our little company with Beth, be, is because she is just one of these innovators and free thinkers, and she's not someone who's stuck in the old ways of fundraising. She's constantly trying to innovate, and she has recently started her own boutique consulting company. And I and I just love visiting with her because it makes me re- just reimagine the way that we can do things differently. So I want to give a little bit of background on Beth, and then I'll kick it to you um, to kind of fill in the dots, but Beth has been um, just a a passionate professional in the nonprofit space and working with uh, effective teams and working a a lot with campaigns. She is a campaign powerhouse. Um, So she's worked on two presidential libraries, campaigns in healthcare, higher ed, K through 12 independent schools. So before she came to Kansas City, uh, she spent the majority of her career in Tampa, Florida, where she did some incredible things for the Moffitt Cancer Center, University Community Hospital, and the University of South Florida Health Science System. So she has just a, a, a wise way about her, and I love that we're going to talk feasibility st- studies today, which I think she may be sunsetting that term, and so stay tuned because we're Mike about to dig into it. Mic drop moment on the podcast. Yep. So Beth, welcome <laughs> to the show, and please fill in the gaps and tell us a little bit about uh, your journey. Give a shout out to your alma mater and anything else that we might have missed. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is really a fun, passionate topic for me. Um, and uh, just as a little bit of background, I, I love hearing other people's stories about how they got into development because you know, it's not kind of one of those things where, you know, you go to college or you go to school and you think, huh, I'm going to grow up to be a fundraiser. Um, when Said nobody 35 ever. Years ago, <laughs> 35 years ago, I didn't even know such a thing existed. Um, and uh, I was a student at Emory University. And this was around the time when President Carter uh, left office and began his presidential library at Emory, the Carter Center. And I was a political science major and they offered up an internship and it was the very first internship at the Carter Center. So there were just a few of us and uh, we, of course I applied and I got it and I was so excited. And there were just a little handful of us and they didn't exactly know what to do with us because there wasn't a Carter Center. It was just a dream at that point. But what there was, was a massive fundraising effort for the Carter Center. 
And so they placed us in the development office in the capital campaign headquarters. And I got to do this really cool job. So this was before the internet. I know it's hard to imagine, um, but this was before the internet. And um, I actually had to go to the library and read newspapers and- Like microfiche, right? Stories. Like little slides, right? I did all that. <laughs> And created hustle. briefing papers for the president for when he would go on his fundraising calls. So if he was, you know, going to visit so-and-so in some country or across the, across the United States, um, he would have us a little background information on who it was he was visiting with. And of course he was staffed by his development people. And so what I saw was something way cool. I said, look at this he is flying all over the world. He's coming home with millions and millions of dollars and he's going to change the world. I hear Sign your starry eyed intern yep. likeness. Yes. It's so great. <laughs> up, I want to do this. And so, you know, I was just constantly around this big thinking. I was just inspired, empowered thinkers who set off on a journey, had a goal, had a problem, a solution, action steps, and off they went and they were changing the world. And to this day, the Carter Center is doing amazing work worldwide. Um, so imagine when I, you know, I actually got to work there for a little while after college. And then I got my first development job. And so I moved and I uh, went back to Florida and I got my very first development job. Um, and it was really different. <laughs> was really different <laughs> from that. How so? <laughs> but, but you know what it was? It was, uh, it was really interesting for me because I had seen something else. And what I wanted to do and have been doing ever since is I've been trying really hard to get the organizations that I've been engaged with to have inspired thinking to realize that we don't really work from constraint. I know we feel like we work from constraint, but we don't. Every single one of us has the ability to change the world for better in some way. So it's finding out where we fit and what our organization can do best and meeting that donor where the donor is and creating a vision, an inspired vision that causes a donor to say, oh yeah, I'm signing up for that. So um, Beth, I am taking that picture of Kool-Aid that you are brewing and I am drinking it because I think that's what draws me to philanthropy too, is that it does allow you to dream bigger. I mean, these missions and projects that would never be possible any other way are given wings because of philanthropy and people investing passionately. And um, I just love that you're there to inspire people to think differently. And I think, you know, one of the topics we wanted to dive in with you today, I feel like folds into that really well too. It's a very mired concept that before you enter into a big capital campaign, you know, it's very common to hire a big consulting firm and say, we want to do this big feasibility study to have an understanding of if we can get the monies that we want to get to secure to do this. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that and, you know, kind of disrupt it a little bit because we've had these conversations before and I love your thinking on it. And I think the way you express it is really um, powerful. Well, so um, I'm one of those people who really, really loves feasibility studies. Thank goodness. Um, <laughs> I'm glad these people exist. I'm glad the best silver swines in the world exist. 
So traditionally, a feasibility study um, has been a pre-campaign strategy for not-for-profits uh, who have some kind of a project that they want to um, deploy. So uh, they retain someone who comes in and uh, works with their top donors and you know stakeholders, community leaders, staff, you know board, um, and conducts interviews. You know, so basically you're going to want to test some pretty basic concepts. You know, you want to test, you know, image. You want to test leadership. You want to test the project, of course. Um, you want to test um, donors' readiness, and you want to test community readiness. You know, for a campaign, um, these are typically done anonymously. So, um, you know, development professional teams up with consultants. Um, they schedule the meeting with the person that they're going to interview. They go into the meeting, development consult, development person introduces consultant and leaves the room. Um, so that's just kind of how it's been done. And, and it's very, really kind of considered best practice. Well, um, when I entered into the, um, the uh, consulting space, um, I joined a firm, Byrne Pulaski out of Kansas City, and they did things differently. They uh, conducted these studies with staff. And that was a major aha moment for me, because as the person who's been on the development side all these years, um, going through campaigns, um, you know, we would always get a great report from our consultants, um, lots of quotes, you know, lots of good information. But because it was anonymous, you could not attribute it to a specific donor. Um, so you really didn't have that specific information going in when you're talking to your donor for your campaign. And that always felt frustrating to me. Yeah. Well, when I had my aha moment about how this could be, and I realized that it makes so much sense to have the development team there or somebody, the right person to be there in the room because that is an opportunity to steward your donor, to deeply engage your donor in the process. They're your donor. Um, this is a way for you to really hear from your donor, what they what their heart says about your project, or they may have fabulous feedback on a plan. They could have transformational information for you um, that you now get firsthand, and you can guide the conversation and help lead the conversation. Um, the the consultant, and when I do them, um, I do most of the leading of the conversation so that I can ask the hard questions. You know, I don't want I don't want my development person to have to ask some of those hard questions, um, but I can ask the hard questions. And then when we start to engage in conversation, we can kind of bring that development person into the conversation a little bit more. And um, we come away with tremendous information. So it also kind of led me to the other ha ha moment is why are we using this only for a campaign strategy? Oh, thank you for saying this. this. Keep going. <laughs> Yeah, why aren't we using this every single day in our development shops with our individual and um, principal gift programs? Because these are, the, these are the conversations we should be having every day. They're not just conversations to be had when you have a big campaign. Um, so that was really kind of the premise for me, thinking how I wanted to structure my little, my little piece of the world in my consulting world. Um, but the feasibility study really is more of a planning study. And that's what I learned at my last firm. 
and what I've taken with me. Um, you can call it all kinds of things. You can call it a planning study, you can call it a key messaging study. I mean, whatever you want to call it, the the action steps are the same. You know, as a public relations professional in my former life, I mean, to me, it almost feels like a very concentrated focus group, you know, where you're just going out and asking somebody their opinion. And I am, I share your belief that this should not be something that is closed door. Why are we, why are we doing anything that shuts the door on conversation, on, on understanding? I want to know my donor's entirely. I want to know what makes them tick. I, I want to know the answers to those hard questions because I don't want to trip on myself. I don't want to run into those landmines when I'm up against this donor. So I think this is a really fascinating um, exploration of this topic. And I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate right now because I want to know what you would say to kind of um, what I would call like the the old level of thinking for someone that says, well, you know, the reason that I'm going in is to be um, an objective uh, third party that can come in because they'll tell me something that they may not want to share with the organization. Perhaps it was a negative experience or perception or reasons that they don't want to connect. Um, so what would you say to someone like that? Okay, so that's 100% valid. So what what I would say is um, uh, several things. So let me start. <laughs> um, the first one is, I did pose some of these questions when I first kind of started doing these, these interviews. Um, you know, you're, you're interviewing people who've been interviewed 100 times by 100 different firms. Um, you know, philanthropists are the same philanthropists in the communities and all the, all the causes are really looking to that same group of people. So these are folks who have been interviewed many times by other firms. Um, so I did ask the question of them. I said, you know, does this feel comfortable to you? Um, are, you know, how do you feel about this? This is a little different approach from what you're used to. And without exception, they all said, I prefer this. I mean, this is my relationship. Um, I have, I don't, I'm not going to say anything to you that I'm not going to say to them. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I, I am very comfortable and I like it. Um, but there are definitely times when you would want to have more of an anonymous approach. Um, so in cases where there is perhaps the organization is going through some kind of a leadership crisis, or there is, there's been um, you know, problems in culture or some of those kinds of things, this is also a great way to start to fix some of that. So there may be opportunities where you start off with an interview and say you've got a specific objective, say this isn't a typical um, planning study or feasibility study, say this is a little broader conversation. Um, and you have part of the conversation where you have staff in the room. And then if there is uh, stuff that you kind of need to talk about, you've already reworked this out with staff beforehand. And you, then you have a private conversation if you need to really talk through leadership. It does take some inspired leadership um, at the not-for-profit level to, um, to really understand the benefits of that, you know, because that can be kind of scary. Oh, you're going to talk about me. Um, but leadership is a big deal, uh, not just staff leadership, but of course, board leadership 
and community leadership. You want to really vet all of that. Most of the time, that's really straightforward and you can vet it very comfortably um, and uh, carefully within that context of the conversation. But there are times when those conversations should be private. I'm so glad that you said that. And I was hoping you would say something to that degree because, you know, there are just certain narratives in fundraising that we have written. You know, someone wrote a long time ago that have become not only lore, but they are <laughs> they are the way things are done. We were visiting with this um, with a past guest, Mallory Erickson, a couple weeks ago, where she was talking about eight, waiting 18 months to ask someone for their first major gift. That is a made-up number. That is a made-up time frame when, I mean, your donors are probably twiddling your thumbs if you've been cultivating them for a year <laughs> and a half. Especially after a year like this last one, right? And, and, and I think the same is true with the feasibility study, how that needs to be somewhat separate and apart from the organization, which to me is the antithesis of what we're trying to do when we're trying to unite them to mm -hmm. our organization. So I, I really appreciate that you have that thought. And to me, it's no different of asking the question, is it all right that I bring along my staff member? It's no different than having a fear of them saying no to making a major gift at, you know, to the organization. And, and I also want to touch on your point about having strong leadership that understand the benefit of this tactic. And if you have a leader, you know, at the head of your organization who at some level can embrace risk, vulnerability, you know, and, and they can kind of put in a drawer, you know, that, that trepidation of, oh no, what if they say something bad about me? Mm put that away because in my mind, I want to know if they're, if they have a problem with me, I want to address that. I want to be in the room. I want to be able to one, apologize if it was something that we inadvertently did, or maybe we overtly did. Um, but I want to be able to control that narrative. I don't want the consultant to do that. That's our donor. So all of that to say is I agree. <laughs> Long-winded version. <laughs> well, and think about, I mean, think about the ways that you could say these things. Um, you know, we're not going to come out and say, well, you know, what do you think of X director here? Um, you know, we're going to say, give us your feedback on how we can improve. Tell us what we need to know to be better. Um, one time I, I sat in on a seminar a long time ago. Um, I think it, and I, I, I would love to give a shout out to the organization, but I can't Go for remember. It. Oh, We'll put it in the show notes if you figure it out later. <laughs> yeah. um, but one of the questions that that, I, that has always stayed with me that someone suggested that we ask is, you know, if you had all the money in the world and there, there, was, there was no constraint at all, what would you do with it? You know, how would you invest it in this organization to make it a, the best organization possible? Um, so... You know, when you think about the talent of the people that we're interviewing, what they bring to the table is so much more than their dollars. Um, so, you know, if you've got a if you've got a capital campaign and you've got a program or project that you're going to launch, as much input as you can get and knowledge of things, the questions you should be asking um, is really tremendous, and you, a lot of that comes out in these conversations. So they're just rich conversations. And then if you think about too, right now we're living in this COVID world that has turned everything upside down on its head. So if we're in this 
world where we really need to engage with our donors, what better strategy than to bring some of these strategies in-house and start using them to more deeply engage with your donors as problem solvers as you go through whatever it is, whether it's COVID or a capital campaign. I think that's very, very fascinating. I'm, I'm real stuck on this idea of that you can use these questions to not only understand the donor, but to just have this vision for, are we ready as an organization? What do we need to address for the community's perceptions? And I know it's going to be really hard to narrow it down, Beth, but is there a question to you in your toolbox that is like the most perceptive thing that you ask a donor that tells you kind of everything you need to know? Is it, what is that, you know, and what are some suggested questions? One of the things that I, that I like to do right off the bat, the first thing that I address when I'm talking to a donor or donor prospect about an organization is their heart for the organization. Mm. So, you know, we're just in this business of philanthropy and making a difference, and there's got to be a connection. So the first thing I want to understand is what is their connection to this organization? Where is, what piece of your heart does this organization hold? So, you know, when you get it kind of down to the most basic human level, the why, you know, I always send people, Simon Sinek, um, go look at the TED talk, you know, getting Love to why. Yep, big fans. <laughs> so, you know, if you can just get to that, really what is the why of why they are even in the room with us to begin with. Hey friends, taking a quick pause from today's episode to say that we just love to connect with you. And the best way to do so is to join the good community. It's free. Just head on over to weareforgood.com slash hello, and we can connect with all the resources, tips, tools, and show notes to help you do more for your mission. We can't wait to get to know you. Now let's get back to this awesome feel good conversation. I love just your language of what's your heart in this because philanthropy is different than their business as usual, you know, and it makes us do things that are completely irrational sometimes, or it makes us things that we just feel personally moved because of experiences in our life. So I love that you're cutting straight into that. And it's, again, what you just said is it's about story Mm -hmm. and it's about personal connection. And so, and to me, I'm thinking there is your money question right Mm -hmm. there. I would, I would filter every single move for that campaign through the answer to that question, if I ask that, because I all of a sudden understand your motivations. I understand how you got connected to us. I understand your story of why you're still around. And I understand everything about why you love us. And if I know that, I can immediately understand, depending on your passion level, how plugged in do you need to be? How plugged in do you need to be to the volunteer and component of this? Perhaps you're on the campaign planning committee. Um, are you going to be a volunteer? Are you going to go out and open the door for us? Or is that going to translate to a financial gift? I mean, I think that was such a smart tip to just understanding the story. And the thing is, as a consultant, and this is where the consultant, in my opinion, is is gold in this conversation, because as an objective third party, you can go in completely clueless and say, why do you love 
Mission X. I haven't heard your story. And they're going to tell it in a way that the staff member may have never heard. They may know antidotal pieces of it, but, you know, from the soup to nuts portion is going to be there. And that will set the tone for the entire meeting. Genius. Um. Well, and the other thing too, we're so used to as development professionals, we're so used to pitching. You know, it's like, okay, we've got it all in our heads. We've got our case support in our heads and we're just going to go pitch it. Um, so it forces us as development professionals to just sit and listen. I always tell, I always tell my, my partner development professional when I'm in the room with them, I say, you're not going to like it, but I'm not going to let you talk because we need to hear from our donor. And it's so, it's so inbred in us to, um, you know, to pitch, um, that, until we've really heard from our donor, we don't really know what to pitch. So every campaign has multiple facets to it. And um, you've really got to find the heart of the donor and then you can match that donor best to what the right gift ask is going to be. But you got to listen. You can see why Beth is the donor whisperer right here, right? I mean, I think back to our conversations with philanthropists. I mean, Ross McKnight, this was his biggest takeaway is that development officers don't listen enough. You know, they're too apt to talk first. So I love that um, you're encouraging us in this space. Well, could you kind of help contextualize, like, what are the overall steps to the feasibility study? I feel like we've talked about the questions. What is What kind of comes next? And what is the kind of end result of when you've got this planning study done? There are several steps to to the study. Um, you know, of course, first you got to get a meeting. You've got to get your good list together. Your list is going to be your top donor prospects, of course. You definitely want some that are in the upcoming pipeline. So, I mean, everybody's got their group right here at the top that they are so great at stewarding. I mean, it's like you're, you're 10, 20 right here and you know them so well. You're... First inclination is I want to interview all those. And yes, we do. We want to interview all those. Um, But more than likely, most organizations have a pipeline like this of all those folks who've been giving who really are kind of fuzzy. Um, You don't know them as well because we're only one person and we can't always get down the pipeline. So what you want to do is do a really deep dive into your donor base and look at who's been giving to you for years um, they may only be giving to you, you know, 100 or 200 at a time, but they've been giving you consistently, consistently, consistently. So you really want to do a deep dive and do an analysis of your donor base. Um, I think that everyone should have some kind of wealth screening. You know, I just, I just think that that's a tool. It's, I don't think it's a perfect tool, but it certainly does kind of help you a little bit, understand a little bit more about um, how you're going to prioritize your conversations. Um, and, um, so you need some, you need some people from, from that group. That's not as cultivated as your top. Um, you need some community stakeholders. We need, uh, probably one or two members from the board and then focus groups. So if you've got a big board, you definitely want to have a couple of focus groups of your boards. So we can really kind of understand your leadership and we can talk through, um, through some of that. So you're going to do a combination of individual interviews and focus groups. And that's determined based on your overall size of your donor base. And it's based on the overall size of your campaign. So it varies for everybody. Um, And then 
you've got to decide, um, you prioritize your list because you know, I, I have to talk to these people. I want to talk to these people. It's okay if I talk to these people, but if I can't get appointments, it's okay. So, you know, you've got your prioritized list. Um, and then you have to decide who's the best contact to reach out to that person. Mm -hmm. Each one of these really needs to be an individual contact. You've got to somehow contact them the best way they want to be contacted. If they want to be contacted by phone or if they want an email or whatever, you've got to figure out the best way to contact them, best way to get them on the calendar um, and, um, and then assign what staff is the appropriate staff to accompany someone like me. That and it will not be a volunteer. We don't use, I don't use volunteers, only staff. Wow. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, th love I love these steps and I, and I'm trying to honestly think about it through the lens of COVID right now, because when I think about these meetings that I've had in the past, you know, it, it, it the best way I've always felt, at least for me, the way that it feels more comfortable to me is when I can go into someone's home or office, we mm -hmm. can chit chat, you know, I look around, the room and do a quick, you know, two second look around the room. And we talk about, oh, I see you went skiing or where did you get that award or whatever it is. And COVID really cuts the ability to have some of that congenial just sort of um, conversation as a group. So what are you seeing now? Because um, I know that you're in the middle of, you just kicked off a major $40 million campaign with one of your client, Capital Campaign. What did this look like in COVID as you were going <laughs> through this process? Well, you can do it on Zoom. You have to. You have to. You can to. still kind of see their office usually a little bit. <laughs> have you found it's any different in the conversation or the tenor of it? I will always opt for anything in person. I mean, you will never be able to replace in person. In this world that we live in now, um, this is what we have and it's working. It works. People still talk to you and they're still candid. Um, my, my, I'm curious as to going forward post COVID, I don't know that it'll completely go away. Um, it may be easier to get meetings if there's Zoom meetings. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Sometimes it's kind of hard to get these meetings. Um, and especially when you're working with a consultant and you've kind of got travel or whatever involved, um, it, you know, it has really made it much easier to get the meetings. Yeah, accessibility is definitely a pro for something People like can this. Stack them, stack meetings together so much tight. Absolutely. Tightly. One other question I want to ask about this because I think that something you've you've talked about with us offline that is so compelling to me is this concept of anonymity, and I I am a big proponent of removing anonymity in some form within our sector. I think um, it creates a way. It just doesn't inspire community to me at all when you're anonymous, though I do have, you have to have a healthy respect for the donors that want their gifts to stay anonymous. But I just think there's so much power in being able to share a gift and asking people to come along with you. And again, as a sector, that is something that we have allowed to be something that could be very taboo to talk about money, to talk about your gifts. And I have seen a little bit of a shift in the last couple of years. Wonder if you have two on your side where more people are sharing their amounts in the hopes that it would allow others to either come up to that level and meet them or just because they want to know at the level of their, they want people to know the level that they're giving to their pet pr 
projects and their charities. And I feel passionately about this in a lot of different spaces. I was telling John and Julie before this um, episode started that I wanted, why are we not talking about in job descriptions? Why are we not posting the salary? I mean, why would we waste anybody's time, you know, by not telling them how much the job is worth? So I know you have some thoughts about why this should not remain anonymous with the consultants. And I'd just love for you to dive into that. Like I said, there, there, there are compelling reasons why you might want to keep uh, an interview anonymous or confidential. But at the end of the day, we can't use that information. It's not helpful yeah. um, for that donor. It's, it's, so, it's mystifying. It's so muddy. Um, I really think of things differently. I don't I think of philanthropy as an investment. Pretend like our not-for-profits are really for-profit companies with just great causes. Um, if we were a for-profit company and we were working with an investor, it, wouldn't, it would just be an investment. I mean, they're going to make an investment. They expect an outcome, right? They're going to invest in you. They're doing it for a reason. They expect an outcome. How is that any different in the not-for-profit world? That's not different. It's not uh, a donor invests in you. They expect a return on their investment and that return is an outcome. Well, if you don't have all the information, then how do you ever really steward that donor? How do you ever really get to that outcome? Um, so, you know, it, transparency is everything. Um, people give when they feel an organization is worthy and they feel like it's a good investment. So if you know, donor X is a friend of donor Y and donor X is gives to them out and donor X says to donor Y, come alongside of me. Well, that's all information that is should be transparent and can be transparent and that can raise the bar for everybody. I have to be that's sensitive about that because I understand that I am a, a person who will tell anybody anything about my <laughs> life. I am an open book and we have to respect that some people are not that way. And especially generationally people, people, you don't, I mean, my grandmother's generation, some of my parents' generation, you just don't talk about money. So I do think that there's some awareness there, but I do think that, that our millennials, our Gen Zers, they're starting to turn that on its head because they are so public about their giving and they're so open and wholehearted and they invite their friends along and they crowdfund and they, you know, they, they pick a donors choose.org, you know, and, and, and they sh share the story and it's just a different way to look at philanthropy. And I have to tell you, I am just geeking out and loving it. Well, and also there's a, there's a, an entire cohort of donors out there who are just scared to death that they're going to be inundated yep. by every not-for-profit um, and that's valid. Absolutely. So, you know, the, the, there are a lot of flaws in our structure as not-for-profits, a lot of flaws, and that's kind of one of them. Um, so, you know, that's another aspect of this whole COVID mess. You know, we're going to have to really rethink a lot of things. And as we deepen our individual giving programs, we are more focused and targeted. So we're not going to blanket the philanthropic community, we're going to target our giving to people who want to be asked. That's beautiful. Well, you know, something that I know we've chatted about offline that has resonated with me that I just want to give you a second to respond to is that, you know, we talk about these feasibility studies that we have to go through this before we can do the thing. And I love that you have challenged me on that to say, no, if, 
if the thing is that important, like it, it just needs to happen, you just need to find the plan of how to get the money to do it. And I think that that is a really powerful way to kind of turn the whole thing on its head. So it becomes more, I guess, about finding the pathway and just say, it's we're going to keep map. searching until we find the pathway. Yeah. Right. It's your roadmap. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you have these conversations, that is, that is absolutely your roadmap. That's where you're going to identify not only the dollars that you, that you feel certain can come your way, um, but that's where you've really mined relationships. I mean, you've sat down with that donor prospect and had this conversation and you've also asked them um, who they know who thinks like they do. Who do they know that's going to be passionate about what we're trying to accomplish here with this campaign? And you, you'd be amazed at all the names that come up and they're like, oh, well, you know what? I know this person, this person. And then you ask, well, can we work with you on this? And will you work with us to identify these folks and introduce them to us? And then you start start all of the work, the individual giving work that is your everyday job. So, um, you know, really working with our donors and prospects to deepen those relationships and deepen the engagement and broaden the engagement in a smart, orderly fashion. So, John, I guess the first order of business is we got to get rid of the word feasibility study. Let's do it. Because if we We're have a need, we just got to find <laughs> it. It's not that it's feasible. We've got to make it happen. That's what I'm saying. It just it takes away power from how important and vital and valid this mission is, you Absolutely. know, to, to put a feasibility. It's as simple as a planning study. We're creating a plan. Yep. I mean, every every feasibility study leads to a campaign plan. So, you know, at the end of the study, um, your consultant is going to write up an entire plan for you. Um, you know, we, we know we found this. We know that from this, we could pro- project this. Um, I mean, it's, it's a strategy. You create strategy. Love it. Well, so Beth, you've spent your career and life surrounded by philanthropy in lots of different ways. We like to ask all of our guests, like, what's a story that has stuck with you? And I know there's probably a million. <laughs> so one that, you know, just kind of still stirs your heart. We'd love to hear it. So um, I, I've spent a, a, a stint of my life, a significant <laughs> amount of my life in academic medicine. And uh, so I work for College of Medicine and um, we had a, a hospital partner you know, because our residents would go to this hospital partner. And we shared a um, donor and board member with this hospital. And so this, um, this board member, um, she, was, she was just wonderful. And early, early um, on, she had lost a baby. And it was, of course, devastating to them. It was a baby that was born premature. And so you fast forward 30 or more years since that, and they had built a business and they had the wonderful for- good fortune to sell their business and they became wealthy people. And they decided that they wanted to do something really transformational for the community. Um, so they were on both of our boards and um, they came to both of us and they said, we want to create a world-class neonatal intensive care unit at the hospital. Um, but we want more. We also want to research. So they pulled the hospital and the, the medical school together. We had to team up and um, we 
between us created this amazing, amazing transformational effort to build a world-class neonatal intensive care unit that our community so desperately needed. And we brought in a team of um, academics and we brought in a chair of neonatology into the medical school who brought in a team of researchers. Um, this individual was also the uh, chair of the NICU, um, medical director of the NICU at the hospital. And all of that was made possible through philanthropy. And I just, and I just said, I said, this is what inspired thinking does. It brought us together in such a meaningful and impactful way and created something for the community that was wonderful and heartfelt. And it was really magical for the donor. This is the power of philanthropy to me. It, yep. it has the ability to, you know, create healing, create legacy, to create a bridge between an academic institution and, and a healthcare institution. And I have to say, while you were telling that story, just as someone who suffered from infertility my whole life, it's like, I just, I just think about this mother. And I think about even decades later, how raw that must have been and how healing that must have been. And for you as the development officer, immediately, you have a pathway to come talk to her over and over again about the patients that are being treated, that are being saved, the families that are being made whole because of this gift, and how healing is that. And that that is the power of philanthropy and what it can do. And I have to give my hat off to you for stewarding them so well, because you don't become the largest donor to an institution um, by chance that is fostered over a very well, long a time. Lot of people, a lot, lot of people, people. doing a lot of work. So, um, yes, I, I wasn't there for all the time, but, um, but it, it really was a really heartfelt, uh, moment for me. And it just validated what I knew in my heart, what I had learned all those years ago at the Carter center that go big or go home. Think <laughs> broadly. That's it. Big vision is the only vision that a donor will fund. Philanthropy is worth the risk mm -hmm. because what we can do if we take a leap could be so massively move, it could move a mountain, move um, a community, move hearts and minds of people. I just, I just think that if you are not someone who lives and breathes in the philanthropic space, but you are listening to this podcast, find a way to tap into this because it is soul filling. Come be a volunteer at your pet charity. You know, find a way to get involved because these are the things that really make us tick and give us meaning in our lives. So Beth, our final question that we always ask all our guests is what is your one good thing? Maybe a secret to success or a habit. What would you like to give to our community today? The one good thing that I think is most important, and I've already touched on it several times, is you have to have a big, bold, audacious, unapologetic vision. You've got to tell your story in a way that is inspired and impactful. Um, there isn't a donor on the planet who wants to give to something that's an okay vision. Mm. You have to think the biggest dream the biggest vision possible and if you do that every single day you'll be motivated and you'll rise above some of the day-to-day -day constraints of working in a not-for-profit and you will never be apologetic for asking for the big gift 
Our missions are worth it. Beth, so how can folks connect with you? You've given us so much good content. You're going to have a little mini fan club seeking you out. So how can people find you online? Well, they can always find me through you guys. Um, (laughs) Or um, you can always email me at beth at um, silversteinfundingsolutions.com. Awesome. We'll link that up in the um, show notes. my little company. You're on LinkedIn though too, right? I'm on LinkedIn. Yes, Elizabeth Silverstein. So there are lots of ways to find me. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm passionate about this. So I'll always answer any question that comes my way or weigh in in any way possible. You're uh, awesome. Yeah, I love this conversation. And, and when you start your career working for a former president who, let's be honest, if Jimmy Carter walked into a room and asked you for money, would you be able to say no? I don't know that I could because I think he is so endearing and kind. I just love your journey. I love how you've grown and evolved and the way that you've been able to give your gifts to so many nonprofits. It's just been incredible. And we really appreciate you spending your time with our community today. Always good to see you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to today's conversation with Beth. We love her take on these topics and learned so much from her. You know we love sharing our best content with you, and today we have some good news. Our free workshop, Write Less, Engage More, Leveraging a Syndication Mindset, is now live. You can check it out today at weareforgood.com slash workshops. One more thing, if you loved what you heard today, would you mind leaving us a rating and review? It means the world to us, and your support helps more people find our community. Thanks, friends. I'm our producer, Julie Comfer, and our theme song is Sunray by Remy Boersboom. Thanks for being here, everyone. Rabbit fans have always powered the We Are For Good podcast, but now Rabbit fans can get even more goodness and access by joining Good Friends. It's our listener support community for the We Are For Good podcast. Good Friends comes with perks, exclusive episodes with John and I, including The Good Brief, our new monthly cliff notes of the greatest takeaways and lessons learned from that month, and exclusive AMA episodes where we answer your burning questions and tap our community of experts. Join now or learn more at weareforgood.com backslash friends. We can't wait to see you inside. That's weareforgood.com slash friends.